2,000 years ago, think about this, on a Thursday night, Jesus, our Savior, celebrated the Jewish Passover meal with his disciples, as was his habit. But now to, to get a feel of the significance of what's going on as he does that, remember who we're talking about. Who is Jesus Christ? He is fully man, yes, but he's also fully God. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he left the glories of heaven, humbled himself to become a man, to take on human nature and to take on human flesh. He was born as a baby. It's amazing. Born as a baby. God born as a baby. And then he grew up. And he never sinned. He perfectly loved and trusted the Father. He perfectly loved and served those around him. He taught with absolute authority. He called out religious leaders on their hypocrisy. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He healed blind Bartimaeus. And when people turned from their sin in response to his teaching and put their trust in him, in Jesus, at that moment, the burden of guilt for their sins lifted off and the, and the pardoning love of God poured into their hearts. They were transformed. They were overflowing with joy. And now, this Thursday night, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is going to celebrate the Jewish Passover meal with his disciples. But this time, it's different. He led the meal as he had in times past. But this time, at the opening, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he thanked God for it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then at the end of the meal, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. So Jesus was telling his disciples that from, from that point on, they should regularly eat the bread and drink the cup in remembering what Jesus would do. And the next day, just as he had said the night before, Jesus' body was broken. Jesus' blood was poured out. He was beaten. He was scourged with 39 lashes. His hands and feet were nailed to a cross. And he was punished for all the sins of all who would trust him, suffering on the cross until finally he cried out, It is finished. And it was finished. Jesus' death forgives sin's guilt. Jesus' death breaks sin's power. For everyone who trusts him, that's what Jesus' death does. And that's why, ever since that Thursday night 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus' followers all through church history, all around the world, regularly partake of the bread and the cup to remember Jesus' death on the cross. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And to help us, we're going to study the most extensive passage on communion, the Lord's Supper, in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Now let me encourage you, grab your paper Bible. You're there at home, you can have a pen, you can do some marking up. That'll help you to really follow what we're talking about. So you can take crucial notes in the margins maybe. Now I do want to warn you, this is a shocking passage we're going to study. The church of Corinth was deeply dishonoring Christ in the way they partook of communion, and God disciplines them. We're going to read about that. But this passage will help us grow in our understanding of what communion is all about. It breaks down into three sections, three parts. So let's start with the first section, verses 17 through 22. And let's ask, what was wrong with the way that the church at Corinth celebrated communion. Look at what Paul says, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So Paul can't commend them. He can't praise them, because their gathering together was worse than if they wouldn't have met at all. Why? What were they doing? Verses 18 and 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So in verse 18, he says, they become divided, factions. And that's terribly wrong for the body of Christ to be divided in that way. Then in verse 19, he says that this division doesn't surprise him because there are times when God allows division within the church to show who is truly, genuinely trusting him. But now how had they become divided? Verses 20 and 21. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Okay, now, the early church often celebrated communion as part of a regular meal. But some in Corinth were coming to these communion celebrations slash meals more focused on getting food for their stomachs than in worshiping Jesus Christ with their brothers and sisters. So as soon as they arrived, they just started eating and they ate up all the food that was there, including the bread and the wine, leaving nothing for others especially those poor amongst them who depended on that meal for their sustenance. And look at how Paul responds to this in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So in this first section of this passage, verses 17 to 22, Paul tells them that they are wrong to focus on their own hunger more than on worshiping Jesus with their brothers and sisters. They are wrong to do that. Now, why is that wrong? That's the second section 
of this passage, verses 23 through 26. Why is this wrong? Verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, there's that Thursday night, when he's celebrating the Passover meal, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul draws out this implication. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here Paul describes how Jesus established the practice of communion, the Lord's Supper. And this explains why what the church at Corinth was doing was so wrong. But before we go there, let me first point out that this passage answers two common questions that people today have about communion, about the Lord's Supper. One question people have is, does the bread and the wine actually turn into Jesus' physical body and blood? I mean, notice Jesus said, this is my body. He's holding the bread saying, this is my body. And some take that word is to mean that when we celebrate communion together, the bread is turned into Jesus' actual body, and the cup, the wine in the cup, turns into Jesus' actual blood. But that that can't be what Jesus meant. Because notice what he says about the cup. In verse 25, he says, This cup is the new covenant. In my blood. Now, that can't mean that this cup turns into the new covenant. What that means is that this cup and the, the wine in it represents the new covenant that Jesus would purchase for us by shedding his blood. So the cup is a picture, it's a symbol, it's a representation of the new covenant. So the bread and the wine do not physically become Jesus' body and blood but they picture what Jesus' death involved, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, and all that we receive through his body being broken and through his blood being shed. Now, another question people ask today is, when we celebrate communion, is Jesus somehow paying for more of our sins? I mean, is that why we want to regularly take communion so that each time we take, more and more of our sins can be forgiven? But that does not fit this passage, if you look at it closely. Notice Jesus says what communion is about is remembering him, remembering what he did in the past. So the focus is on how he paid for our sins completely, past, present, and future, and he did that all in the past. Not that he's still paying for sins today. Not only that, remember, in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter tells us that Jesus suffered for our sins once for all. He suffered once on the cross. Remember that on the cross, then Jesus cried out, 
it is finished. The full payment for sin had been paid. Remember, as we saw on Easter, stamped, paid in full. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was showing that Jesus' death paid for all the sins of all who would trust him. Their past sins, present sins, future sins paid for completely at that moment on the cross. So understand, because you're trusting Jesus now, all your sins have already been forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins. So no, celebrating communion does not pay for more of your sins. It remembers how Jesus already paid for all of your sins. So that helps us with those two questions. But now, back to the point of this passage. What Paul is doing in this section is explaining why what the church at Corinth was doing was so wrong. Why was it wrong? And it's because in verses 24 and 25, Jesus says that the point of communion is remembering Christ's death. And in verse 26, he says that the point of communion is proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. So what does it mean to remember Christ's death and to proclaim Christ's death? What does that mean? Well, I've put both those words together and I, I kind of broken it down into four actions, each of them starting with the letter T. So kids, young people, you learn these, and then you quiz your parents on them later on today, okay? So four words, all beginning with the letter T. Here's what it means to remember and to proclaim Christ's death. Here's the focus, the purpose of communion. First, we think about what Jesus did on the cross. Second, we turn from any sin we've been clinging to. Third, we trust what Jesus did on the cross. And then fourth, we treasure, we love, we worship him for what he did on the cross. So first, we think about what Jesus did on the cross. Communion is not a time where we daydream or we don't just like empty our minds, but communion is a time where we think hard, deeply, about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. He was punished for the sins of all who trust him. He paid for sin's guilt. We think about that. I was guilty. My guilt was put upon him. He was punished for my guilt. He broke the power of sin so we can be saved. So we think about Jesus' death on the cross. Second, we turn from any sin that we are clinging to. I mean, we all know when we're clinging to sin. Just look, what are you clinging to? And the Holy Spirit will convict us when we're clinging to sin. So we, we know what that is. So with Jesus' help, turn to him. Turn from any sin you're clinging to. Ask him to free you. Ask him to help you. Tell him you want to be, oh, you want to be done with that sin. So we turn from any sin we're clinging to. Then third, we trust what Jesus did on the cross. So we trust that his death paid for all our sins. There's that old hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So trust that his death paid for all of your sins, that it's freed you from ever being condemned by God that it's brought us everything we need now and forever. The faith we need, the strength we need, the guidance, the holiness, everything we need to live life here. And it guarantees us eternal life in knowing Jesus, our Savior, forever. So 
trust what Jesus did on the cross. Then fourth, we treasure what Jesus did on the cross. We are stunned at God, the Son, dying on the cross 2,000 years ago. The creator of everything suffered for those who've rebelled against him. I mean, what, what a display of love, what compassion, what mercy. is nothing like it in the universe. So we treasure, we love, we worship Jesus for what he's done in dying for us. Okay, so remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death is the point of communion, and that involves thinking about his death, turning from any sin we're clinging to, trusting his death on the cross, and treasuring what he's done in dying for us. So we do this as we lead up to partaking of the bread and cup, and then as we partake of the bread and cup, that's what we're doing. And, and as we do that, Jesus will come. He will meet us. He will feed us. He will pour out even more of his love into our hearts. He will give us even greater assurance that we are forgiven. Thank you, Lord. He will strengthen us against temptations we're facing. He will encourage us through the trials we're dealing with. He will embolden us, make us more confident and compassionate to share the gospel. And he will give us tastes of the very joys of heaven, his presence, his glory, his beauty in Christ. He'll give us tastes. So that's what communion is supposed to be. Now, can you see how wrong what the church at Corinth was doing, how wrong that was? So here's what we've seen so far. First part of this passage, verses 17 through 22, Paul says that they're wrong in what they're doing. Second section, verses 23 through 26, he explains why they're wrong in what they're doing. And that brings us to this last section, verses 27 to 34, where Paul tells them what they should do. So what should they do? Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we need to examine ourselves to see if we are partaking in an unworthy manner. Now, what does that mean? A lot of people are confused about what that means. Some people think it means like you have to remember every sin you've committed this past week or you'll be partaking unworthy. You've got to remember every sin from this past week and confess it or you'll be unworthy and guilty. That's not what Paul says here. We'll see that in a moment. And that's impossible to do. You'll never remember all your sins for this past week. So that is not what it means. Others think it means you need to make sure that you, you haven't sinned for a certain amount of time before communion. You've got to be sinless for a certain amount of time before communion. But that's not what Paul says here in this passage. And that's not possible either. First John says, if any of us says we are without sin, we're lying. This side of heaven, there's always some tinges of sin in us. So what does it mean then to partake in an unworthy manner? It means the opposite of the four T's. It means not thinking about what Jesus did on the cross. 
Maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe you're just thinking, when's this going to be over? That would be partaking in an unworthy manner. It would mean not turning from sin we're clinging to. Maybe you're saying, I'm not going to forgive that person. I have a right to be angry against that person. If you are clinging to your sin while partaking of communion, you are dishonoring Christ, who died to set you free from that sin. It would mean not trusting what Jesus did on the cross. Maybe relying on my own goodness to, to make up for the wrongs I've done. That is partaking in an unworthy manner because it dishonors what Christ did so you could be forgiven. Partaking in an unworthy manner would mean not treasuring what Jesus did on the cross. It would mean settling for lukewarm affections, not asking God, oh, Father, I'm lukewarm. Set my heart on fire with love for Christ. Use the truths of these songs. Use the truths of your word to fill me with love for Christ. I, I want to be worshiping Jesus, loving Jesus. And as you do that, God will stir that and and you will be treasuring Christ. So to do it unworthily means to be settling for lukewarm affections. So that's what it means to partake in an unworthy manner. Now, the fact that the church at Corinth was more interested in eating food than worshiping Jesus with their brothers and sisters shows that they were not partaking in a worthy way. They were partaking in an unworthy way. And Paul wants them to understand how vital, essential it is that they change. They need to change. So in verse 27, he tells them that with what they're doing now, they are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That should make them tremble as they hear Paul say that. And then in verses 29 through 30, he explains what that means. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Let me just pause there. I think that means two things. It means without discerning the body of Christ. That is, we are celebrating, worshiping Jesus for having his body be broken so we could be forgiven. So if you don't discern the holiness of what you're doing in communion, recognizing the body of Jesus... But it also might mean that you're not discerning the body, the body of Christ, the church, the unity how we're together worshiping in this and caring for each other, not having there be divisions. So anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, this is not an easy passage to understand. It's kind of shocking, like I, I said earlier. But now, let's try to picture what's going on here so that we can figure out what's happening. It seems that after a communion service, where some of them had been more excited about eating food than worshiping Jesus with their brothers and sisters, some of them got sick maybe that night or the next day, and some of them died. And it seems pretty clear that Paul is saying it was God who caused them to get sick and to die. The reason I say that is because of verse 32. It says they were being judged by the Lord. That's what was happening as they were getting sick and dying. Now, 
Don't misunderstand this word judged. Notice in verse 32, Paul says that this was God's discipline so that they would not be condemned along with the world. So this was motivated by God's love for them. This was not judgment as in punishment. This was loving discipline. This is God's love for them. It seems that they were genuine believers, although they were dangerously close to drifting away from Christ. So God, to save them from eternal condemnation because he loves them, caused some to get sick and some to die. And he did this so that as they were sick and dying, they would wake up. What am I doing? They'd wake up to their sin and turn back to Christ. Now, this passage does not mean that every time a believer gets sick or dies is because of some sin they committed. I mean, think about Job, the most righteous man in all the earth, covered with boils. That was not because of some sin he committed. Or think about the blind man in John chapter 9 who'd been blind from birth. And Jesus' disciples ask him, so who sinned, his parents or him, that he's been blind all these years? And Jesus said, neither his parents nor him. That's not what's going on here. This sickness is for the glory of God. But sometimes, like in this situation at Corinth, that is what's going on. It is because of it a believer's sin, that they are sick and even die. Now, like I said, this is because of God's love for them. They were on, on the road to being judged along with the world. They were on the road towards eternal condemnation. And so God allowed this sickness, even death, and in the process of sick and process of moving towards death, as they turned to Christ, he was there with them. He's there with, with open arms. As they're turning back to Christ in their sickness, he's there with open arms, assuring them of his love for them, welcoming them home. This is all about God's love for his people. He does not want them to face eternal condemnation, allows sickness, allows death to come, and when they wake up and turn back, he's there saying, you're back, you're back, you're home. I'm so glad. Then Paul concludes in verses 33 and 34, So then, brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Okay, so here's an overview of this passage. Three parts. Verses 17 through 22. When celebrating communion, it is wrong to focus on food or anything else, for that matter, more than Jesus. Because, verses 23 through 26, the purpose of communion is thinking about Christ, turning from sin, trusting Christ, and treasuring Christ. Therefore, verses 27 to 34, when you celebrate communion, think about Christ, turn from sin, trust Christ, and treasure Christ. Now, let me close by asking and answering some practical questions. First, is it biblical? Is it, is it biblically permissible for us to celebrate communion when we're not together physically? I mean, it's clear that in the New Testament, communion was celebrated with believers together, face-to-face, -face, physically. The church was together. But is this required? 
It's obviously the best. It's what we all prefer. We are excited to think about that day when we're back at the Radisson worshiping Christ together. But the elders could find no place in Scripture where physical togetherness was a requirement for celebrating communion. What's important is unity, but that can be expressed in many different ways. So therefore, we thought, since God meets us so powerfully in communion, since God blesses his people so richly in communion, giving fresh assurance of forgiveness, strengthening our faith in him, giving us deeper hope for the future, since God meets the church so powerfully in communion, let's celebrate communion. Let's get back into our monthly rhythm of the third Friday of every month. That's the first question. Second question, how often should communion be celebrated? Well, the Bible doesn't say, and different groups have come to different conclusions, which is permissible when the Bible doesn't say. The, the principles would be we'd want to do it often enough so that it was a central part of our church life, but not so often that it would become routine or trivial. So at Grace, we've decided at this point, monthly. So the third Friday of every month. We'll be getting back into that schedule in May. Third question. What kind of bread should we use? And should we use wine or, or grape juice? Okay, regarding bread, the Bible doesn't say what kind of bread to use. So whatever works, have it be bread. Um, and then in regards to what to drink, because some believers think it's wrong to drink any alcohol, we thought it was most loving to use grape juice. Um, that's been our, our approach here. Fourth question. Maybe the most important one after this passage today. If communion can risk God's discipline, wouldn't it be wise to avoid it altogether? Right? I mean, you might be thinking, whoa, we're talking about sickness, death. If that's the, 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 the possibility here, I just would rather avoid it altogether. But church, we cannot do that. Because that would also dishonor Christ. Remember, he calls us to regularly remember his death, to regularly proclaim his death by partaking of the bread and partaking of the cup. And keep in mind, it is not hard to celebrate communion in a worthy manner. That's not hard to do. If there's an area of sin you're clinging to, you know what it is. The Holy Spirit's convicting you. You know it's not hard. Turn to him. Confess it. Repent over it. I mean, why cling to the puny joys of sin when you can have the overflowing joys of restored fellowship with your Lord and Savior and treasure, Jesus Christ? Turn from the sin. Are you kidding me? Turn from it. To, to partake in a worthy manner, all you need to do is come to Jesus, admitting you're a sinner, you deserve God's judgment. You can't be good enough to save yourself. And you're confessing your sin and you're asking him, help me. I want to be freed from this sin. If, if you're doing that, then, then just like the prodigal son's father. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He's running towards you. Jesus is running towards you. He's bringing you all the help that you need. All the help you need to live this Christian life. He's celebrating your home your home, and, and he wants to throw a party. That's what happens when we celebrate communion. So let's do that together now.
So you should already have the, the bread and the cup available. Here's what's going to happen. In a moment, I'm going to pray, ask God to bless this time, and then we're going to sing a powerful worship song called Behold the Lamb. Mm. And so during this song, let's be beholding Jesus. Let's be thinking deeply about what he did on the cross. Let's be turning from any sin we're clinging to. Let's be trusting his work on the cross. Let's be treasuring his work on the cross. And after that song, I'm going to come back and lead us in partaking together of the bread and the cup. Now remember, communion is not for sinless people. None of us are sinless. It's not for sinless people. It's for sinful people who are turning from their sin and trusting Jesus to forgive them and to change them and to satisfy them. Now, if that's not what's in your heart, if that's not where you're at, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we're glad you're tuning in. And I would just simply encourage you, don't take communion, but instead let this time be a time where you think deeply. I want to challenge you, think deeply about the fact that there's a God and you have sinned against him. And there's no chance of you being good enough to make up for that sin. And that Jesus, in amazing love, suffered on the cross to pay for the sins of all who will trust him. And I pray that as you think about those things, today will be the day when you turn from the sin you've been clinging to and you receive all that Jesus will be to you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your astonishing love in sending Jesus, for your costly love in not sparing your own son, but giving him up for us all. And Jesus, we worship you for loving us and giving yourself up for us. And we pray now, Father, that you would come and that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to think deeply. Help us to turn from sin. Help us to trust Jesus' death. Help us to treasure Jesus' death. Pour out your Spirit in a mighty way. Meet us. Give us everything we need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.